0: Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Osiris.
1: Hey, Mike. I, I can't see clearly. Is that a lightning bolt on your shirt?
2: You're damn right it is, Othiel. This is Section 119. Hey, guys, we just got our hands on some great new gear from an officially licensed partner of the Grateful Dead, Section 119.
1: Oh, yeah, Section 119. They sent me a pair of board shorts. They're actually really cool. I actually uh, wore them on stage, and uh, they were really comfortable. You know, I live in board shorts in Florida, so that's kind of my jam. And uh, these have a cool print on them. Bertha's on there and the roses and stuff. I really like them.
2: I got one of the performance polos with the Grateful Dead bolt embroidered in the chest. It's super stretchy, and I love the way it feels when I'm on stage wearing it. I feel like I'm representing the dead and rocking out some jokes in style.
1: Section 119 was started by a couple of fans who wanted more than a lot to show their appreciation for the Grateful Dead. They started an apparel line that has everything you can imagine to represent the band at every occasion.
2: And not just the dead, they've got some amazing fish duds as well. From button downs with dancing bears all over it to board shorts with super vibrant prints and donuts all over your shirts and socks. They've got something for every fan for any occasion.
1: If you're looking for more than a t shirt to celebrate the Grateful Dead, the folks at Section 119 make the highest quality apparel.
2: Boogie on over to section119.com and use code COMES A TIME. That's all one word, COMES A TIME, for
1: 15% off your next purchase. Hey, this is O'Teal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash COMES A TIME pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week.
2: It's another episode of Comes the
1: Time. That's
2: O'Teal. And that's Mike. And we had Bela Fleck on the
1: podcast today. And uh, he's the coolest. <laughs> he he's is, so man. Neat. It's the first bluegrass album he's done in how many years did he say? 20 or something? something it's a long like that, time. Which, yeah, I mean, um, it's crazy. And he, he ended up getting just an absolute summit of talent. Like, just. Like the at- Last Supper. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. I'm not even gonna give it all away. But what a fun conversation, man! I I, I forgot how easy it, he is to talk with, you know. And uh, he's a really he's a a really good spirit, man. I really like his spirit. His I, human, I kind
2: of found this to be like a history lesson of sorts, too. Mm. I got to know what first of all the way he describes panning like that like and the recording style like to me I I thought I knew what that meant and I kind of guess I like, that's what I thought but his description of how it fits bluegrass recording is really neat. Yeah. You know, and he kind um, of
1: revolutionized bluegrass recording in a way too yeah. by doing it wrong or, you know, why do you do it like that?
2: <laughs> he's he's a uh and I I get the chance to and I won't ruin it but I get the chance to thank him for Sending me a Sonic life raft
1: when I needed it. <laughs> <laughs> Having a bad trip at Bonnaroo. <laughs> I wish you could
2: have seen me, Oteal. I was walking around going, "How do I get home? I hate this. This is terrible. I'm gonna die in a field in Tennessee." And then it was just like, "Bing, boom, but don't, ding, ding, dun." And I'm like, "I just followed it. Like, Where is it? Where is it? <laughs> acoustic music, and it was like just the palate cleanser." It was just a breath of fresh air and it's, yeah, we, we, have ta- you know, we've talked about it, how it all kind of going back to the basics sometimes. And it's just so beautiful. It was really great yeah. to talk with him and I can't wait to talk with him again. This was one, huh? That could have went five hours.
1: Oh yeah. I, I'm i glad he wants to come back.
2: <laughs> We're happy to have him back. And, uh, we are sponsored by, um, Garcia handpicked cannabis, if it's available in your area, ladies and gentlemen, we recommend going and sampling the goods. It's uh, just like everything Jerry's ever done, quality. And uh, the packaging's amazing. The insides of the packaging, the stuff that's in the packaging, amazing. And uh, they they spare no detail. So uh, GarciaHandpick.com to find out if it's in your area. It's the best. Go get you some. And also, we are on Osiris, home to so many great podcasts, OsirisPod.com for those. And uh, Patreon, go visit us at Patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod. Get your bus pass. We got a whole bunch of great content for you there. Um, If you're out on the road seeing shows, please be safe. Please, please be considerate to others. Please do the right thing and take care of each other out there, wherever you're listening to this. Because we Please. want you to stay healthy and, and we want everybody to stay healthy. Be smart, people. And be kind. Yeah, in that order. I was the one in high school that would buy beer for everybody, and I was the youngest, but I had the quickest beard and a nice, it would grow thick. And now it grows in, I'd say salt and pepper and what's red, crushed red pepper. So it's like, it's a weird hodgepodge. So from far away, my beard would grow red. When I had hair, it was like a dark brown, but my beard would grow red. And now when I grow Mm -hmm. one, it's just a complete mess. It just doesn't look like, see yours is nice and fully white. I like that. Like that's like, at least it's consistent. I look like kind of it, it's falling off at, in places. <laughs> right.
3: Patch, yeah, but well, it's not. I, I, the last time I had a beard was like I think when I was eight, nineteen years old, and I had I had a beard in the band that I was in, and and um, there was a banjo newsletter um, cover story about me, and and that I had the beard, but I I got I cut it off because I started looking sort of Hasidic. And it just wasn't going to fly. I mean, I didn't really, I I wanted to show off that I could grow a beard because I was at that age, I guess. But then once I cut it off, I never, I never wanted to go there again until now. And then it was just more bored. You know, I just didn't want to shave. There's no point in shaving. No one was going to see me. Mm -hmm. And then I started doing our our, our banjo shows and it was like, hey, this is who I am right now. But uh, it's different. Yeah. I definitely feel like I've just turned me into like people actually knowing my age. Because before it was could be a little bit, you know, I don't know, maybe he's fifties, maybe he's who knows, forties, but now it's I'm clearly in my sixties. You do look young, man. Yeah, like you if you were face.
1: if you were clean shaven, you're right. A-
3: so yeah, if I wanted to be clean shaven, and, so, but this, this is the truth. So I, I the truth ought to be okay too.
1: Vulnerability
3: is the I, is the... Yeah. <laughs> I,
1: I would be okay be with the truth younger. if it was all white. <laughs>
3: Yeah, what was yours? What would yours be? Have you done it? Oh, it's not
1: good. My wife is like, "Oh, no, no, no." Do you grow it patchy too? <laughs> do you have a patchy
2: beard, or does it grow in like? Full? Yeah,
1: I can't do a full thing, and it's like color-wise, it's patchy. Like if I could do that mm. silver fox thing, man, oh yeah, I'd have the works, like full fro mustache. The, my beard just does here, you know. I could do the that part, you know, but it just. Yeah. I like that monkey tail idea. Where did you come up
3: with that? Yeah. Oh, some friends of, my, of Abby's. I think they were trying to make me look stupid. They said you should do the monkey tail. That, like all the ball players are doing that now. The baseball players are doing that. that would be. That's what you ought to do. And and I did it, and everyone was like, "Well, wait." We thought it was going to be a joke, but it actually looked pretty good. I, I still haven't had the nerve to go back to it, but it was it was better than it ought to have been. I was like, I do have to say, I was always a fan of James Taylor. Who like when he started losing his hair, he just took a shot, an album cover shot, which was just like completely honest. Like, here's my head. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah. instead of trying to like pretend you're younger or, you know, whatever, thinner or all the things that, that we all do, <laughs> embrace the reality of who you are and yeah, life and yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind
2: of, I'm dying to get to the point where I'm old enough to be okay to just let it what will grow, just, grow. It's just, just not, not, I'm not the shot. body type for like, I just l- would look so silly and, and I'm just short and stocky and with glasses, it's hard and all yeah. types. I mean, it would just be like a, like a Halloween costume. If I, I started shaving my, I've been shaving my head now for God. I don't even know 15 years or so, something like that. I went, I lost my hair pretty young I'm 41 now, but mm. um, yeah, I started in my early twenties. But the minute I saw it going thin, I was like, that's it. I can't, you know, I couldn't fake it, you know?
1: You couldn't right. embrace the Sipowitz. <laughs> yeah. My inner
2: Sipowitz. Yeah. We were trying to figure out who I would look like if I grew it. But uh,
3: what's the Sipowitz joke? I don't know what that means.
2: He, do you remember, what was it, NYPD Blue or something? NYPD Blue. Dennis <laughs> Franz. Remember that guy, Sipowitz? Oh, I love him.
3: Yeah. I great. feel like
2: if I grew it, that's kind of how we were talking. Like, <laughs> there's a there's a couple things I just can't wear. I can't wear a leather jacket. I can't wear like certain hats because it's just I I look like a an undercover cop at like a Steely Dan concert.
3: or something. Uh, so. <laughs> I uh, I can never pull off leather leather pants ever. I I don't know any but I mean some people seem to do it. I just never, I never, I never do it. Thank you for fact, if I ever wear anything nice, it feels weird. Like I am supposed to be a slob. I, if if I ever put something nice on, I I I go well. Why would what do people think of me if I show up looking like I don't? I don't. What am I trying to prove here by putting on something nice? Who am I? You know. So I buy things and they sit in my closet. Like I have that closet full of crazy clothes that, that I never will have the nerve to put on. That I find on tour and they', oh, this will be great. I'll play it. I'll wear it with the Flecktones. You know, it's wild. And, and yeah, you know, then I put Just on my sucks. black t-shirt and play the show. You know. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> you I can even it. buy newer. You can even buy newer, nicer black t-shirts. And you still go back to the... Yeah. <laughs>
1: that's how Mine I is always exactly, uh, yeah. either <laughs> the Grammys or the funeral. It's like it's something, you know, something black tie or somebody died. And uh, I feel so alien in a
3: suit. Mm, people
1: are like, oh, yeah. you look nice. And I was like, I feel like this, you know. It's, yeah. uh,
3: that's where we're trying to figure out. If you wear them all the time, you learn how to be comfortable in them. You know, that the people that have to do that for whatever.
1: And tailor-made yeah. too. Like oh, then yeah. It's like, oh,
2: I remember in one, a, a couple li- lifetimes ago of mine before doing comedy for a living, I did sales and we had to get our, go and get our, <laughs> my first men's warehouse, you know, suit. And I just remember feeling so unbelievably uncomfortable. I'd be sitting across from someone trying to pitch some <laughs> payroll solution or whatever to them. And I'm just, I couldn't care less. And I feel it was one of those things like when you sit the jacket would pull everything back and then the the, the tie would be like right. <laughs> and I'm trying to keep <laughs> yeah. it cool but I know my head's turning bright red and sweat and I'm just like whoever thought that this was a proper business attire like a <laughs> this it's like two little baby hands choking you <laughs> with a tie <laughs> and you got to wear a jacket and it's just, I, I don't know I'd never understood yeah. that
3: I really I really feel like um it was a uh, um like clothing is all designed by men, and like like um, like a thin tie and lo- and long lines make fat men look thinner. But meanwhile, there's none wow. of that kind of a consideration for women and what they're expected to wear. So, in other words, the dress for a man tends to hide your figure, and the dress for women is perfect. And, and You excoriated by, you know. People's, um, uh, what's the word? A uh, judgment, you know. It, it's not fair. And I, I, I mean, high heels, which, you know, what I mean. All the things that they do to women with fashion that are 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 not comfortable and and only flattering to certain women with certain um, physiques that are, you know, you know, one and fifty. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, But, totally but, but the, the guy thing—if you learn how to wear it—it it actually could make you look a little less, you know, schlumpy or fat or whatever. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's my. I'm theory. with you.
1: I'm always yeah. yeah. Just the most comfortable, the
2: better. That's
3: mm-hmm. it.
1: So when you were like playing bluegrass, I think that's probably one of the reasons that I uh, also shied away from jazz. You know, everybody's dressed up very nicely, which I think looks great on them. But like, <clears throat> what was it like on the bluegrass scene way
3: back when? Could you just wear whatever the hell you want, or were they? Um, it depended. Who, who you know, what what clan you were part of? Like Sam Bush and the Newgrass Revival, they wore, <laughs> you know, t-, t shirts and jeans with holes in them. And well, I don't know if the jeans had holes in them. It wasn't intentional. It wasn't hipster jeans with holes in them. They actually yeah. had holes in them, and the shirts were you know worn out and um and but you know when they felt like it they put something nice on and it might be pretty flamboyant. But um but what the bands that I were in were more sort of main like trying to toe the line so we always wore the nice sort of western shirts or with snaps which is idiotic for banjos cuz it tears <laughs> up the back of your banjo but uh, we had band outfits with the same shirts or um or, or you just wear a nice shirt and, and jeans and that's pretty much what I've stuck to I really understand.
1: would love some pictures of the, all the things you've mentioned, you with the Hasidic look, you with the suit, yeah, you with the, the Western shirts, you know, uh, like, like,
2: baseball cards, Bela Fleck, Bela Fleck baseball cards.
3: <laughs> but what I loved about playing with Chick Korea is he was like, um, he wasn't into any of that. Like, he would show, he would wear, you, you know what old, like, old guy sneakers oh, are? Oh, yeah. You know, they're like, they're, they're like gray, they're like geriatric sneakers and he would wear, you know, whatever he felt like. He was just like not... He was so casual about it, and he wasn't gonna like make the performance. It was just part of his day. Like, oh, okay, we're gonna go on stage. Um, I once in a while would overdress, like with some nice shirt, or like really try to look good for the gig with a you know something, and um, it it didn't seem to work. So I you know I went back to the black t shirt, you know, because <laughs> it was he was just not not worried about that.
2: That's the he greatest. always looked good. Yeah,
3: but he did, he looked good like a normal person. And then you look at Future Man. Yeah,
2: right. Straight out of Hamilton. Great.
3: Before Hamilton was Hamilton. And yeah, he was. He, my mom that, that blew my and mind. That's, that's yeah, you know all of those brothers. Uh, he's the one that has that that's, that fashion style and that way of, of doing things. Everyone else has different ones. All of the other. Well, you know better than me, Oteo. But but uh, but he's always had that flair and that that uh, visualization of uh, an image that he thinks about, uh, and um, it's neat.
1: Yeah, I think when they were kids, you know, they had that superhero kind of alter ego. It's like, the, <laughs> it's like Super- <laughs> <laughs> you know, the original <laughs> idea for that was like, um, you know, with uh, Andy Kaufman, and then he had that character, Tony Clifton, that people didn't even know was him at first. Right. Just like total alter ego. So that's what we were going for with Sipowitz like as a comedian just had this complete separate character. And that's kind of like future, man. He just like, is the character. Like he's merged his, his superhero with his <laughs> earth self, you know, it's like Bootsy or something. Yeah. yeah. I love Bootsy. it. Bootsy. Yeah.
3: <laughs> right. Right. Like Bootsy. Yeah. Bootsy's that exact same thing. And, and I think and like Prince was, you know, Prince would walk in a room and it was a thing, you know, I mean, I have to say, a guy like Bill Monroe was the same way. He carried himself. He dressed a certain way. He showed up when he walked in the room. You noticed. He was like, "Oh my gosh!" And I guess, but Earl Scruggs wasn't really like that. You know, he wasn't really like that. He was more of just he was more of a regular guy. So you t- ended ended up talking a lot more about Bill Monroe than you talked about Earl Scruggs. You know, in, in the bluegrass world, because uh, there was so much drama all the time. You know, he said this. He did this. He, you know, it's. It's crazy. I'm the, 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 um, good behavior is not rewarded in showbiz. <laughs> no, not very I'm true. More, yeah. <laughs>
1: Bluegrass is no exception. <laughs>
3: no.
2: Um, it, you know, and it almost seems interesting too with a lot of like the shiny Western type, like you know, the shiny boots and the big belt buckles, and like you were saying, the buttons. It seemed Jimmy like that, Yeah, that was like the real flair was the buttons and like the. The the bit you know, but the shiny boots with like the intricate detail and all of that. Like you look at some of those old pictures, and it's like, man, that's some pretty fascinating stuff. I don't know how comfortable, but
1: um, now our our pictures have shifted. <laughs> it's funny. It doesn't matter though. We that's awesome a... though. <laughs> <laughs> we just went. people are people are gonna go. Wait, what? <laughs> Somebody blinked. And... <laughs> so yeah, for those of you that wonder why our pictures shifted, we just had a, lo- a little uh, Technicografico- discre- technical technical. <laughs> difficulty but yeah bale i was wondering you know since you brought up the dressing and the western shirts and stuff what was it like coming from new york and then being all of a sudden in that hardcore like bill monroe because the bluegrass scene that i got into was already post newgrass so it was like half hippie before i went all the way in but you went in there was (laughs) what was that like
3: well, you know, you introdu- you interviewed Tony Trishka, and he did some of the heavy lifting before I got on the scene. And I yeah. remember, you know, there's a magazine called Bluegrass Unlimited, but they really should have called it Bluegrass Limited at the time because <laughs> all people ever did in that magazine was grouse about people that were, you know, expanding the music like Tony, and you it was yeah. pretty rare you you would op- you could open the magazine to the letters and not see uh, somebody just freaking out about how bluegrass was being destroyed by people like special Tony Trishka, Andy Stattman, et cetera. And um, so so when I came into it, so he took a lot of hits, you know, and I I really, and he couldn't have been a better musician and a better person. um, And, uh, and couldn't have loved the music more, but um, he just has always just had such a good attitude about all of that. And, you know, when you're the first person, you don't always get, you know, treated as fairly. So by the time I came along, there had already been a Tony Trishka. There was a Newgrass Revival. I joined the Newgrass Revival after it had been around for um, maybe seven years. Um, Wow. That long? Eight years. Yeah. It was a, it was a band before me with uh, a great legacy, great, a great band. Um, And, uh, and then, and they were playing with Leon Russell and two of the guys got really tired of it. Didn't want to do that anymore. Didn't want to be part of it because it started out. They were the, they were going to be the, do an opening slot, and then play a few songs in the band. But eventually, Leon liked them so much, he made them his band, and they lost the opening slot. And pretty soon, they weren't doing their own music anymore. And two of the guys were like, we got to go. You know, we, this is not what we're here for. Um, and um, But but they wanted to drop out of the dates that were booked, and Sam and John didn't want to do that. So um, So they left. And they left John and Sam with Leon, and they went on. And finish the dates. And then Sam and John also wanted to go back to being Newgrass and decided to restart the band with new people. And that's when they got me in 1981. Wow. And, uh, but they had already, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people had already been out there turning Bluegrass upside down before I came around. I was just another. Um, and, uh, you know, Tony Rice is a good example. Uh, uh, Sam Bush, David Grisman. And there's a whole New York yeah. contingent, this Breakfast Special bunch that Andy Statman and, mm-hmm. and Tony oh, that great. They had this crazy. In fact, they were the most progressive of anybody, and they got the least real um, appreciation and success in the in, in the business. But they were the most, you know, the wildest, craziest, amazing, most amazing group on scene. But um, and then they broke up, and that was over. And um, yeah. But um, but I I actually you know I started out in the in the Boston band out of high school called Tasty Licks, unfortunately, and uh, when, when that split up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was watching what was going on with Tony, you know, and I was like, I don't know. I don't want to be, you know, everybody mad at me. You know, I, and plus I, I wanted to figure out how to play with the cats, like the, the southern cat, like Tony Rice and, and guys like in Bush. I wanted to play with those guys and um, and be, they didn't seem to be a progressive banjo player in that world um, the same way those guys were. Like, um, like for instance, J.D. Crow's band with Tony Rice and Jerry Douglas in it. He played straight, and the other guys played more modern. You know, Ricky Skaggs, they all they all played more fancy, fancy stuff, but he was always the straight player. I thought, well, I'd like to be in that band playing the way I play and with the way they're playing, the other guys are playing. And when Tony Rice went out west and started playing with Grisman, there was no banjo in the band. I said, well, I want to play with those guys. I want to play with those guys, you know. So I thought I should go down south and really learn the straight stuff, and it would be a great thing. And I got an opportunity to move to Kentucky with Mark Schatz. We joined a band down there. And that's where you know the snap shirts came in a bit, and and that's when I got to really be on the bluegrass scene for a couple of years in a band that we were on the fringes. It was called Spectrum, um, and we had we did some stuff that wasn't straight straight ahead, but it was guys that had all played with J D. Crow and 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 been in his band, so I, I was getting some of the lineage and, I, and yeah. just living in that town. I went to see him play he played at the Holiday Inn in, on Newtown Pike, like he played for a month at a time. And if I was in town, I'd be there every night watching him and figuring out. Because, cause, you know, there's an egotism to like. Well, Tony trish is my guy. Like, I learned from him, and nobody can play like him, and nobody could. But it was it was this modern, new, newfangled stuff. And 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 what was the thing? Why was crow so good? And when I first got there, I was like, I I love this, but I don't know why he's not doing that much.
1: Yeah. You know, and finally mm-hmm. it dawned
3: on me how much he was actually doing, and it became a part of me. It made me a better musician, a solider musician. than maybe a lot of the New York guys were better about ideas. But they didn't have that southern uh, timing and that southern tone they didn't have the old banjos and and the old instruments they they didn't have the eth- um the ethos that the southern guys had so i wanted to i wanted to be a northern guy that could be with the southern guys and the northern guys and and do do it all that was my goal and i started really studying the earl Scruggs stuff all the live radio shows and and studying Crow and the cats that that had the rhythm you know yeah
1: wow. that, that timing that you know they always the timing man you know (laughs) and it's they're right it's it's a it's a thing it's a language
2: well and and in talking about this in 2021 you know like there was no social media there was no cell phones there was no like so in connecting with you know coming from the northeast and connecting with folks down south was it all via like you know magazine was it all via like the letters back and forth, getting to know someone, kind of following up. Like it's not as easy to connect back then,
3: right? Well, I remember uh, we were in this band, Tasty Licks, me and Mark, and we were playing in 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 Knoxville, and we heard about these guys up in in Lexington that were, you know, interested in forming a band, and we just got in a car and found them and played with them, and we ended up starting the band with them. That's great. Um, and, but it was like cassettes, you know, it was just like you know, you remember, too. Mm-hmm. Trading cassettes. Oh, oh! I'll make you a dub of this Flat and Scruggs live show that nobody has. Or there's radio shows they used to do at five in the yeah. morning, and you'd hear Earl play. And you know he was. They would. They would do. You know they get up every morning and do these radio shows, and then go drive and play gig somewhere in the south, and then get back in time to play another one. And they were tired, but they were playing all the time. And so the spontaneous stuff was coming out of Earl Scruggs. And, and a lot of times those radio shows really sounded great. was mm. some tiny little studio they're all gathered around one mic and the banjo was just unbelievable. So, um, I, I, I just really started getting what was so amazing about Earl, but he wasn't on the scene when I was in, he, he, he kind of disappeared. I think he was not feeling that well. And, um, um, and I, I could, I didn't get to meet him for quite a long time until I had moved to Nashville and I'd been there for several years. And then John Hartford introduced me to him, brought him to his, brought me to his house. Wow. And uh, and in the end, we got to be very good friends. He lived about two miles from me, and I'd go see him whenever I came home. And uh, it all turned out, you know, like a dream. Really, mm. what's your career? Wow. Like, being my two top most most favorite musicians, um, uh, and and awesome. getting to have a real a, a mentor kind of warm grandson kind of vibe with them
1: that's
2: awesome. so important we talk to about make. that a bunch just that the ability to have a mentor and to realize it while you have it and not go ah, i wish i took advantage of that when it was there but like to be yeah. open and available to the lessons at that time is so important
3: it is you know, and i <laughs> know it's, you can tell when you've got a mentor because um when you're with your peers and you got a lot of ideas, you're in a hurry to say what, what you think should happen. But when Chick Korea says, um, you know, um, I think we should do this, this, and this, I go, yep. Yeah. There's no bone in your body that wants to shout out your idea. You're like, Amen. same thing with like here, Hussein, when I get to play with him. If he has an idea, I'm like, yes. Oh, let's yeah. Do it. Let's do it. Whatever you think. That's so let's great. I would be yeah.
1: too scared to play with Zachary saying. I got the chance to play with Elvin, and I was like, "I'm not ready yet." You know, <laughs> <laughs> I just now I kind of wish I had done it, but it was just Holy like shit, I just it was I felt not worthy. You know, I know. I mean, well, I
3: I feel that way still about all my years with playing with Chick. As much as we got to do, and I couldn't do what he could do. You know, but it was okay. it was just an opportunity for it to rub off on me. You know, um, you can only get better by being associated with people that are better than you. And where they really are better than you is, you know, a matter of perspective. But, um, well, Chick, it's not. It's just fact. But, (laughs) you know what I mean? You being with him, you would have just had an incredible growth experience. And you would have been great.
1: Yeah. Well, What I've realized a lot now that I'm older is how open those cats were. They were like, because they were welcoming. Like, sure, come on up and play. You know, it's not going to compare me to Jimmy Garrison or whoever. It's like this is us right now in this little hotel lobby at Montreux Jazz Festival. I just was like, you know, I was in my early twenties. I was just, I'm a drummer. Who so? He's literally my biggest musical hero. Wow, because I was a drummer. a yeah, long before.
3: I, well, he was just such a badass, cool dude. Like just, just he probably wouldn't have to say anything He'd be just completely intimidated. But, but I don't hmm. think he meant any harm. No,
1: and we actually, I hung out with Elvin, I think, two or three times. And wow, how gracious. It's so great, because I'm sure you've had this, Baylor, where you meet some heroes, and it's just such a letdown. And it's not their fault, because they're humans. (laughs) And, you know, I put them up on that pedestal, you know. But when you do meet, like, Elvin Jones, Roy Haynes... Yeah, you know all the meters, guys. Zig less When you meet your heroes and they're just like angel race, gracious, truly humble. Somehow, <laughs> unbelievably, it's it's just life changing. You know, so I did get that with Elvin. At least I just didn't get to play with him.
3: Yeah. That's 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 something. something. Yeah.
1: So you now you're put doing your first bluegrass album in a long time.
3: Is yeah, that- I was just going to say that people are kind of used to themselves and a little tired of themselves is what I experience and they're happy if you can be somebody new that brings them out of themselves into something new yeah. maybe they discover something new about themselves like if i play with somebody and i go oh i'm playing different stuff i, I really like that person i'm not yeah. necessarily checking out 100 focused on how they're playing it my first thing is what is this doing to me and it's it's a selfish um natural thing that happens with you you know you can't help it um or i can't help it it's like oh something stimulation is happening I'm not doing my regular thing and it's a wonderful feeling and I always love that. And then it makes me take real notice in who they are and what they are usually after that. Can I do my thing with them first of all or can they make me do something I would never normally do? Mm. That's, that's what's that's what a great collaboration should do. Should bring something out of you that you can't come up with on your on your own. But that's yeah, bluegrass. Pl- bluegrass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was going to say that's what playing with Colonel Bruce did for me cuz I never Played with bluegrass musicians or, the, you know, it took me so out of my element. Yeah. And I had that same thing, like, can what I do fit with this? Like, where does it, there's some way that all fits together. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, it's going to change me. But also there's a part where I don't have to change where they like meet and then we influence each other. Right. And um that was that was really the first time that I've broke through those kind of barriers, like taking myself out of my element. And, well, uh, you
3: always seem incredibly open to me and and very responsive to everything that's happening around you. And that's, um, so, you know, if, 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 I also have learned that, uh, the more, um, tunnel vision and what was the word judgmental I am and the more, um, elitist I am, the more I lose, you know, the me. more, the less opportunity I have to love something or learn something I didn't know.
2: You know, one of the, one of the fun parts of, of, being a a listener and a fan of both bluegrass and jam music and you know how open and vulnerable it is, is that everyone gets their turn and that's fun to watch Mm -hmm. because it's like, you could trust that you could trust the band. You could, you can, I have a lot of faith in my bands because I know they have faith in each other and they show it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not really into the going to see a band where 80% of them are behind the leader that's up there shredding and pointing and flames are shooting like i'd rather see got black t-shirts and sweatpants (laughs) and everybody's taking their turn and they're enjoying what the people that like you're getting turned on in the moment and you're like oh wow that's i gotta follow that like go i love that about bluegrass i think that's one of the things that always kind of grabbed me about it right off the bat like even early you know like nashville skyline rag and stuff like that where it's just all kind of like in the round there and it's like that that's really fun to experience as a fan it's always keeping you on your toes and it's always keeping you like rooting for you guys you know what i mean thanks for listening we'll be right back after this hey there osiris listeners
4: i wanted to tell you about our friends over at smart wolf For more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good.
2: What's up, everyone? I'm Mike. And I'm Oteal. And these are our Sunset Lake CBD gummies that are almost gone. Sunset Lake CBD is a farmer-owned business that
1: ships CBD products directly from their farm to your door. For years, Sunset Lake was a Vermont dairy farm producing milk for Ben and Jerry's ice cream. In 2018, they diversified and started growing hemp for CBD. And with a product for everyone, they offer pre-rolls,
2: hemp cigars, and hemp flowers, as well as tinctures, gummies, and CBD-crafted coffee to help with stress, aches, and pains.
1: Sunset Lake CBD saves you money by shipping high-quality CBD products directly from their farm to your door. Want to know what I've been using a
2: lot of, O'Teal? This salve with the Arnica uh, yeah. on, my, on my old bones. You get back from a show and you got tore ankle, rub a little bit of this on there. You're ready to dance the next day. And you know, Sunset Lake uh, comes a time. Listeners can visit sunsetlakecbd.com and use promo code time for 20% off of their purchase. That's sunsetlakecbd.com promo code time and tell them we sent you.
3: Thanks for listening. Well, it's a team sport and there's some competition in it and hopefully friendly competition. Yeah. But, um, it, I think, um, I don't know. I think I would say the same thing about any great band. You want to see everybody really supporting each other right. uh, at all times. And when, when somebody does something good, you want everybody to be happy, you know? Um, and so I think it's like a great, uh, basketball team, you know, that, you know, some people are really good at defense. I mean, I, I think, um, um, good music can be made up any possible way, you know, it can be only one soloist and everyone else is in support or it can be all equal on the front line. You know, it's, it's, there's no rule. It can be whatever it is. And if somebody is just a phenomenal support player and that's what's needed in the band and they're happy and, you know, I mean, think about like the bass player in Mahavishnu, you know, he didn't Mm -hmm. get a lot of, uh, but, but that band wouldn't have been together without him. I guess you're right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He just passed
3: away. Yeah, I know. That's why it came to my mind. But I was talking to Mark Shatz years ago and it said that and he sometimes he's like frustrated. He's like, I'm not good enough, you know, you should play with better people and I'd say, I need somebody to jerk on so I can jerk off <laughs> 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 I'm, here, I'm here to jerk on <laughs> he's, he plays, he's a great player He's a great support player And, and he provides a bed uh, Sorry I took it yeah. there but, but he provides a bed that's really comfortable And I can do my thing And he's a great dude And he's supportive in every way And he's willing to do anything he can do for the band And the music, whatever he's doing He's a good dude, people want to play with him you know. So there, there's no rule But I do love that blue And when I do my music with bluegrass it's, I, I always end up making it pretty darn equal um, once in a while, someone will say, "Hey, it's a banjo record. Why don't you take two solos?" You know, people yeah. want to hear you. It's your tune. You know, say, so, "Well, I'm going to play the melody at the beginning. I'm going to play the melody at the end." You know, but so I'm always a little resistant. But um, sometimes I do. But um, this new album is pretty darn. Everybody's probably featured just as much as me. It's just a lot of different people. I'm on. Well, I'm on every track, but most other people are on several tracks, and it's a double album. So, oh, cool. there's a lot of people and a lot of nice. a lot of uh, a lot of. A lot of great playing.
1: So you say double album. That, that makes me think it's actual vinyl.
3: It will be. Yeah. Yeah. It's gonna be vinyl too. But it's it's uh, yeah. It's nineteen songs and of of various lengths and wow. it, yeah. It started out with uh, you know really wanting to get. I, I made two real bluegrass records in my life of my own and and some people would say they're not really bluegrass but banjo albums with a bluegrass group you know, with yeah. bluegrass as a, as a hearty uh, component of the music. So one was called Drive and one was called Bluegrass Sessions. And they were with the same band with Tony Rice and Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and Stuart Duncan and Mark Schatz. Uh, and um, mm. I think that's everybody, you know, and, and other people who played less like Mark O'Connor was on yeah. one and Vassar was on the other as guests and um, <laughs> Earl was on the last one. But but it was like I made Drive and then it was 10 years later, I made Bluegrass Sessions after Flecktones had, had happened and, I wanted to get back, and then we toured that one, and it was great. And then twenty years went by when I couldn't do it, and part of it was that Tony Rice was really not responsive. He was having a lot of trouble uh, playing, and um, he, I, I couldn't imagine doing a record like this without all of those guys. And at a certain point, he just got it; just wasn't going to be possible, and I was going to have to, you know, even never. And I had all these tunes that were like withering on the vine, you know. I've got tunes, and they're. You know, you you were attached to them for a while, and you never got to do anything with them, and they're just sort of withering. And I'm like, all these tunes that I've written that over the last twenty years, and thinking about that band, and they're never going to get done, and I'm going to forget about them, and they'll just be gone. You know, mm, yeah. start thinking about that kind of stuff. You know, as you're getting older and stuff. But um, so so I just started thinking about, it. and then then we had this episode with our son, who's now three year years old and very 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 healthy. But he uh, we almost lost him to uh, really a hereditary liver disease that we didn't know he had and he oh. was almost bled out and um and so for some reason in the aftermath of all of that I found myself like desperately needing to do a bluegrass record oh. and I don't know if it's the community I can't explain why it was so compelling I mean it was it wasn't like while we were still in the middle of the recuperation although yeah. recuperation took, has taken a couple of years for us to get over it but maybe we'll never be over it but um Uh, But he's good. He's really good. But at any rate, for some reason, it was connected to this whole event. And, um, you know, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going touring. I'm, you know, I'm going to be here for a while and reducing everything. But it wasn't that it was that sense of things undone. um, I can't quite explain it. But at any rate, so I started throwing around ideas. And, um, and I thought, well, I can't get Tony. um, So maybe I'll try playing with a whole new bunch of guys. And I found a whole new bunch of guys, Michael Cleveland and Cody Kilby and uh, Paul Cowart and uh, um, uh, oh, and Michael did I say Michael Cleveland? The yeah. blind player's amazing. These so are
1: all names I don't know. I'm like, yeah, oh, it's, yeah, it's like a pantry <laughs> full of
3: new food, fresh blood. Yeah, yeah fresh blood, right? <laughs> Leslie, who's like this great mandolin player, a uh, young guy, and who I thought had a lot of real moxie. And and so I I got them over for a you know jam at my house where when they all showed up, I had all of these charts and and and, uh, and threw all this music at them. And uh, it sounded great. I was like, wow, okay, this is what I'll do. I'll do this. And so I planned to record in maybe four or five tracks with those guys to start see because they were local. I could get them to come over and they weren't, you know, crazy busy. And then after a little while, I started having buyer's remorse. And I started thinking, well, why aren't I recording with Sam and Jerry and Stuart just because Tony's not there and yeah. and Mark and, and Edgar? And, and, yeah. uh, and so I... Then I and I was talking to Abby, and she said, "Well, why don't you do both on the record?" And I was saying, "Well, you don't understand, honey. I, I make records with a band. That's what I do. And when I do all the diversity of the music, because it's the same players, it makes it cohesive. And that's my thing." And she said, oh, "Okay." And then I went and thought about it, and of course I, <laughs> I was like, "Well, I'm sorry, uh, you were right. Pretty good idea. You are right <laughs> as always." And so then I then I opened, once I opened up Pandora's box, I was like, "Okay, well, I'll do these two bands," and then. I was like, well, why don't I have, you know, I love Chris Thiele and we're f- very friendly and why don't, how could I do a new record? Why don't I do something with him? And then around that time I met Billy Strings and he was really uh, eager to come over and jam and I thought, well, wouldn't that be fun? You know, Billy and Chris together because that would spark them both. They'd never really oh even God. met. Oh, and so, um yeah. and then Chris said, well, why don't you try Billy Contreras? And I thought, well, if Chris likes the idea, it'll be much more on the edge. And so we did a few tracks with those guys uh, and then, David Grisman was playing duet shows with Del McCoury and he was going to be, I, I said, Hey, Oh, if you're around, why don't you come by? And he did a couple of days, uh, or, you know, or, or I guess a day of tracks. And, you know, pretty soon it was like, Oh, Tony, why don't you, we never, you know, done anything on one of my records. Tony Fischke came down and Nome and we did a tree, a three banjo thing. And then, uh, <laughs> and then Abby's, you know, Jesus. on my shoulder again, um, Bela, no girls, you know, there's, there are girls, you know, mm-hmm. and I was like, dang, you're right. And so then I went back and put together another band with Sierra Hall and Molly Tuttle, who are fabulous musicians and, um, just as good as anybody else. And I don't know why my unconscious male bias, I was just going for the guys that I had been thinking about and, and wanted to play with and hadn't even thought about it. And, um, and I'm really glad I did because, uh, we made some great tracks and Sierra's in the touring band and she's just blowing my mind. Um, So that it ended up just growing and growing and growing. Phenomenal. I couldn't stop. And it all kind of came to a close, I think, in January. The last sessions were like early January, I believe, right before the pandemic hit. And then I was sitting with all of these, you know, tapes. Nobody overdubbed or anything. We just did. We would do a song for three hours and go do another song. And then I would pick up the pieces after everybody left. And so I had a year and a half to do the picking up of the pieces and, you know editing the you know finding the best stuff and coming to determinations and mixing it all myself and everything Wow! and, uh, and here it is oh, damn my, that's beautiful I, it's like a
1: summit yeah. man i can't wait to hear this thing now
3: yeah so i think there's 19 people on it and uh so it's a real community record and i've yeah. never done a, like a community record before so um and then we we did our first gig um here at rocky grass last weekend and um and I had put together. You see, the nice thing about having this many people on the record is, when I go tour, I don't have key people that I can't. If I can't get them, I can't do it. There's a pile of people I can put together great bands from that are all in the rec, on the record, and they have to learn the whole all the music, which was quite a quite a task. So, I, the first band was Brian Sutton on guitar and Michael Cleveland, this incredible fiddle player, and uh, and Sierra playing mandolin and her husband who. Justin who is a, he plays everything. He, he played double banjo with me on one song. He did double mandolin with Sierra. He does double fiddles with Michael. He plays Dobro like Jerry Douglas, except Jeez. nobody oh. can play like Jerry Douglas. Damn. And he sings, you know, he's got a real bluegrass voice. So, so he's covering all of the you know events that I had on the record where I had different people play together and, uh, and we can pull it all off live. And we did the whole, we did all the music and it was, uh, it was intense and really fun. Is it just me or does it seem like
1: it's more common in bluegrass that the musicians tend to be able to play anything with strings? Like it just (laughs) seems like there's more musicians that were good at multiple, like really, really good at multiple instruments.
3: I don't know if that's true. I mean, I think it's, there are people like that. Just like in jazz, you've got a guy who's like an incredible pianist. Like you've got, you know, Jason Marsalis who, plays the vibes like crazy and drums like yeah. a and whistles, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and but yeah, I think there's more of a tendency for everybody in bluegrass to play the guitar, but a mandolin player mm. isn't necessarily going to play the fiddle, but Stuart mm. Duncan plays fiddle and mandolin yeah. really great. And Michael Cleveland plays mandolin really great though. They're known as fiddle players, but you know, I don't play anything. I don't play Dobro or you would think that would be a pretty natural with the picks the same. Yeah. Um, um but
1: you're yeah. from New York. <laughs>
2: yeah, even look like at Garcia. Like- I think Jerry was a banjo player yeah. before he was a well, guitar. Player. You know, and Billy. pedal steel. Yeah,
3: yeah, and pedal steel, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. When I first was learning from Tony Trishka and stuff like that, I, I loved all the guys on the record so much. I remember getting a fiddle and learning the fiddle solos it sounded terrible, and getting the mandolin and trying to learn Andy's solos and the guitar and. and it, but at a certain point, it became clear to me that if I really wanted to be good on the banjo, I needed to really play the banjo. There was a little pedal steel infatuation there too. And it was yeah, it was just going to be so time consuming. I couldn't see how I could get to where I was trying to get.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, you got there. <laughs> I remember. I remember the first, uh, the very first Bonnaroo, um going way too uh, heavy with the drugs, way too fast, and walking around. And I was overwhelmed, entirely overwhelmed. And I heard you and Edgar, and I followed. The music over the hills and through, you know, the crowds and passed out people and all of that. And you guys were like a life raft to me. Oh. It was so crisp and so clean and so refreshing that it literally took me out of a horrible mind state and just put me into a great place, like a comforting place. And I was sitting right there watching you guys, like, your angels, you guys were oh. sent to save me, and it was just the most unbelievable experience. And I'll never—I could still see it to this day.
3: I remember and it, it was just—I so, remember that it, it rained understand. like partway through the set. The rain hit, and the the rain poured. In. They were so unprepared that first year. There was like oh, a a little plastic covering to the monitor board, <laughs> and and it just when the rain hit, it it just started to, and it just poured directly into the monitor board, and the monitor board just went. <laughs> and it was dead and we had nothing and the audience had nothing and so we ended up, I think if I remember right maybe there were some front fills and we turned one of the front fills towards us a little bit so we could hear ourselves a little bit
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> and, it, and, it started, and when it rained, everybody cheered as if we had brought the rain because it, oh, so it was so hot it was like,
2: yeah, Bela and Edgar, yeah they brought the and rain, like, man it washed my bad trip away, I'll tell you that much well, that's but good th- that, went, that, that that year It was like, it went from <laughs> 500 degrees to like that you could see the steam just rising off people's shoulders and burnt heads and all of that. But I've, I've, you know, and I had seen you before then, but that one is a, it's, it's like branded on my memory as one of the most like (laughs) trust fall. Like I talk about having like, like the ability to trust fall into music and that was one of those moments that was just like, this is just exactly what I needed at the exact same time that I needed it. And I always love that. Like I always love, I remember Del McCrory band playing at a fish festival and it's just, bluegrass is just oh, such a beautiful, that. like, oh, I don't want to say a palate cleanser. It's so different, but it's so it's, it's in the raw fundamentals of everything that we're listening to. And that's, that's the, the thing acoustic
1: that's part yeah, of it. And I feel the know? same
2: way about jazz where it's like, <clears> you can put it anywhere at any time and it's welcome, you know? And, and that's the, just the two, I guess most American of musics, right? <laughs> bluegrass. Yeah. And, you well, know, when
1: I not started. That, that stamps
3: you as a certain kind of listener because for some people, uh, bluegrass is repellent and, and bandos mm-hmm. are repellent. And for other people, it's soothing. And they, yeah. And you jazz too? Jazz, well, same it's... thing. Yeah. Time to go talk. Both of those to musics, talk to your I... friends, not listen. You know, once the jazz beat comes.
2: Yeah. See, to me, th- those are two types of music where if I close my eyes, it sounds like there's a symphony up there. But really, mm-hmm. it's the two of you. It's just all 10 fingers are working. Do you know what I mean? And it's like when you can, yeah. when you go see a jazz band and it's like it could be a very minimalist part of a song, even. It just sounds like there's more going on. And then you open your eyes and it's just like a right. couple of people. And it, that to me was always so fascinating about Bluegrass was well, that like the, the amount of sound coming out of one instrument.
3: For sure. But I mean, when you get to the kind of great players or someone like Odile, for instance, I mean, I learned this from Edgar like more is not always more It's a very obvious thing, but like when you have busy players with a lot of ideas going on and you get just a couple of them, it's a full sound. And if you think carefully about the sonic contribution of each instrument and you have a low instrument and a higher instrument, like the banjo and the bass, for instance, uh, any other low instrument is going to get in the way of the bass and any other higher instrument is going to get in the way of the banjo and the, the dialogue is going to have to make room for that. So, mm. Um, with just the bass and the band, it was a very full palette and you could turn it you could turn it up and it would feel like you were hearing you know you're hearing all the way from the top to the bottom there's all this stuff going on where you could have yeah. 10 people playing all in the same range and it would only be this much stuff you would actually hear so good jazz players because they're not like banging chords consecutively all of this they're playing separate lines that inter, interlock and flow even though they're spontaneous like Bach or something there's you can hear all the lines separately and it can be a very full sound with, with you know with very very few people are very actually a yeah. few lines. So it's, it's more about our orchestration and being um, natural at doing that. Now, the weird thing about this is bluegrass is the opposite. Bluegrass is the, the, the worst thing because uh, in terms of orchestration is everyone's in the same range. Uh, you've got guitar, <laughs> mandolin, banjo, dobro, fiddle, all sharing the same frequencies. And so a lot of times it's very hard to mix it properly. And like um, for me, I've learned pan, you know, panning, on a record really helps but like jazz used to be when the guy would walk up to the microphone he was a lot louder and bluegrass used to be like that when people play on one mic and you see Del McCoury you get to get a taste of that um, whoever that. comes up front is really dominant and everyone follows them and the next person comes up and does it and there's this real dance and you can really hear the front person but now that most people mic all the bluegrass instruments separately and you know or they have pickups or it's it's all so present then all the frequencies fight and there's no opportunity yeah. for everybody to get quieter and make room for the leader um so okay. it, it's really a problem of um you know technology actually making it worse in general so um well with my bluegrass group my idea is that um no you know no pickups um use the right. ears so we can use really nice mics and turn them up and then stay off of them when you come up front yeah. And it's your time. Everyone's going to hear you get louder, and you're going to follow their lead like you did when it was on one mic. But you're really going to hear each other. And it worked yeah. pretty well at the first gig um, so far, so I'm, I think it's going to it's going to work out. We'll have that acoustic aesthetic, and we'll have dynamics. A lot of times when I play with the top bluegrass guys, but we all have pickups, it's just this huge muckety puckety sound. And it's like we're not helping each other. We're not helping ourselves get a great sound out to the people or hear each other well. So um, yeah. you know, I have a lot of opinions I've, Obviously, <laughs> yeah. We fixed something
1: that wasn't broke, <laughs> you yeah, know.
0: Like, right. yeah. Updating the software. <clears throat> then, right? yeah. yeah. Oh God.
1: Right. I, when I started playing banjo, it was because of my wife, and then she, first year we were married, she moved to Africa, and I picked up her banjo. Oh. And I um, and that's there's a, a whole connection to throw down your heart with this that I'm getting to, but you know um. I was. We lived in Lawrenceville, Georgia, next to a black Angus cow farm. And I was out there just depressed because my wife was gone for a whole year and I'm learning banjo. And I started to get my roles together. And all of a sudden, this huge grin just came over my face. And I'm looking at the cows and, and a little voice said to me, you're picking and grinning right now. And I was just like, oh, shit. That's why they say that. You're know, like, all cliches are true. Yeah. And I was like, I, I like texted my wife, it's true. That's why they say it, you know. But, you know, when I, I was studying, you know, uh, Reverend Mosher had said to me a long time ago, you know, you should be playing banjo. And I was like, what do you mean? He was like, black people. And I was like, what? And he said, because it, it comes from Africa. And I was like, oh, all right. So then all these years later, 20 some years later, when I actually dug into it, um, I called him and he told me about Throw Down Your Heart. Mm. And I actually, one of the places you were in was Tanzania, right? In Africa. So can you explain to people what that, because I was in Tanzania with her banjo playing and I was like, oh my God, it was so cathartic because I was like, here I'm at one of the homes of banjo playing. So, can you tell people about so did that they that might to, not know? Did you go to Bagamoyo? No, oh. actually, we were. It was uh, Lake Tanganyika or something. I was actually uh, looking. Actually, wasn't in Tanzania, but I was looking across this body of water at
3: Tanzania. It was like in right Canada? there.
1: Like I could have swam to it. I think
3: we were in, you in or Zanzibar? No. Uganda. Uganda, you were in uh, Uganda. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, they- I mean, honestly, um, the, um, the banter doesn't come from that part of Africa. Um, it comes from West Africa, but I went there because I had uh, some access and some musicians I was really interested ah. in. And when I got there, I found out all these things. Um, there's a town called Wagamoio. I think that's kind of how they say it. Yeah. And and what it means is throw down your heart, basically, more or ah. less. And that was the um, you know we're all we're all very aware of the uh, West African slave ports where the people were yeah. you know sent put yeah. on the ships and sent west, but a lot of people, including myself, had no idea how huge the, the Eastern African slave trade was. In fact, quite a bit bigger yeah. and longer, and uh, and slaves going to the Arab states yes. and uh, place, uh, Arab countries um, or territories or whatever they were back then. And um, and so the story was that when, when people were enslaved and brought to the ocean and they saw the ships in Bagamoya, they would throw down their heart because they would never see their home again. Um. Realized they would never see their home again. That was the story that was told to me by some yeah. local musicians there. Wow, um, yeah. it's heavy. It's heavy, and um, and you know the, the banjo being so, you know, um, entwined in that story. That's why it struck me as a perfect bittersweet title. Because people, you know, I like title where you don't you, you think about it, and maybe you don't quite know what it is, and and yeah. you have your own perception. Because it's enough to throw down your heart and fall in love with an instrument. You sitting there with the cows threw down your heart because. You've got to experience what it's like to have a banjo in your hand, sounding good, and you making the sounds like the sound is coming at it up at you. It's like a little piano in your lap, and it's a okay. real joyful thing. And so it could even be as simple as that, but it isn't. It's much more complicated than that. And yeah. and we can handle complexity. We're yeah. human beings. We can ha- everything doesn't have to be simplified for us. It can be all of these things. But I like that name because it it really it really respected what had happened and why the banjo was an American. instrument uh Mm. you know through slavery and um and what it meant to human beings
2: who are we talking to O'Teal? was it tony that had it like the back of the the actual body of the banjo was almost like a gourd
3: yeah
1: yeah that was tony yeah because a lot of those banjos uh the carolina chocolate drops uh rihanna is the first time i actually got to hold one like you have to um hit it with a hair dryer so the head tightens. <laughs> really? tightens up, you know, and it was fretless and lower. Yeah. And man, that sound really did like, you know, my grandfather on my mom's side comes from Durham, North Carolina, where a lot of those black banjo players are from. So it literally was in my DNA like calling me. Cuz what uh, you know, when I heard that so I, Bela, I didn't want to play with a pick at first cuz you know, I've been playing with my fingers yeah. forever. So I was like, well, I'll just do claw hammer or maybe my own bastardized whatever yeah. I come up with. And I was sitting there watching TV one day and Jess is gone. I'm depressed. And all her finger picks were sitting on the coffee table. And I just picked one up and put it on this finger and I just went ding. And it was like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's I so like, yeah. yeah. I was like, whatever. I don't even yeah. care. I just put them on. It's was like the dog. Walking with shoes on at first. (laughs) It uh, it was so alien and foreign, just horrible. But that sound, (laughs) and that's what I was saying before, it just retuned like my spirit.
3: Hmm.
1: Like I think that's what was calling to you at Bonnaroo. You know, it's something about acoustic music, like, Mm. and it really messed me up going back and playing with the Almond Brothers. Because everything's so loud and just like it just felt like you would just turn the volume up to this and it would just stay there. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I would get back home and I'd just be like, ah, you know, <laughs> and I could just, it would just piece me out. So it really, uh, it was a super cathartic thing. And then when I found throw down your heart, I tried to jam because now, now I committed to picks. I'm trying to like, I got a Scruggs book. I'm I, Trishka was helping me and I'm trying yeah. to just get the rolls down. Right. And yeah. then, so I put on, uh Baseko Koyati and I tried yeah. to play with it and I couldn't play with it. And I was no. like, wait a minute, I'm black. I should be able to play with this. <laughs> this is not <laughs> acceptable <enough." laughs> wait So then minute. I just had to like really struggle and that's then I, there's some like hammer on that happened and then I could get all these I got in the groove with it. And um it changed and that's when I wrote all that stuff that I call it Afro Billy. Oh. And it was like wow, it just changed everything. And uh, I I just marvelled at how you. I love how you went in there and like found these musicians. I guess tell people like the the original banjo. I guess one of the
3: names for it, it's ngoni. Yeah, that's the one that's in in Mali. Although I don't believe that there were slaves taken from Mali, but it's it's part of a family uh, tradition, yeah. uh, like part of a tradition, uh, uh, a music, an instrument to tradition of a certain shape and so- kind of instrument that is all over that part of Africa, and it's bigger in in the Gambia where they call it the accounting. Yeah. But it's uh, it's basically the same. There's a one called the Halam, which is made with a snakeskin X A L L A uh, um, I think Hollem, and they play all almost stuff. Almost sounds more Middle Eastern on strings that are so skinny, uh, like fishing wire. But but it almost mm-hmm. has like uh, the string. It's not like a plastic string. It's more like thread, wrapped thread. And wow. it's so quiet. I don't know how anybody hears it, but the musician who's playing it, like I could barely play. And and yeah. they play with that that same Ngoni technique with the fingernails, both directions, and and they use the fingernails. So that's why they don't need picks. They use their nails. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone like Basako, who's, uh, you know, he's still upset that I didn't name my children after him. <laughs> <laughs> he's a very funny guy. Have you met him? Oh, I would love to meet him. His band uh, is
1: fabulous. Boy, yeah. he plays so good. So and is it related?
3: Of, ki- of kids that, that are playing the instrument to you. Is it kids. related
1: to that Claw Hammer style, what they're doing? Or is it different?
3: A little bit. I mean, I think the guys in Ngambia are a lot closer. Their yeah. their hands like this, but it's similar. But I mean, the truth is, um, what Besecco does is just much more of a virtuoso kind of way of playing. Um, so I mean, he can he can really jam out um, in a different way than most clawhammer players. Not not that there aren't some, but the technique of clawhammer is is a little harder to be uh, to improv freely with. I think yeah. you're really in your tuning, you know. So you, I mean, you can improv almost. I always tell. When I run into a hammer player who asks me how to like expand, I say go listen to Indian music because because mm-hmm. they get in in a, a rag and um and they're really still in one tonality. And if you've got a banjo tuned in an open C or something, then you can really use the, that drone and you can really get you know do a lot of beautiful stuff that appears. You know, I guess you don't really call it harmonic because it's not there's no chords, but you can do yeah. things with the modes and the different. You can change it up quite a lot and do quite a lot with that. Where um I don't.
1: And they're writing, man. Paseco, the tunes they write, yeah, the unison lines is it's almost yeah. <laughs> it's really deep stuff rhythmically and uh, very beautiful. It was great deceptive, to hear, you right?
3: play. It's huh. deceptive. His stuff is his band stuff is deceptive. It seems like it's going to be no problem, and I've tried to play along with some of it too, and in, and on tour with them. It Took me a long time to kind of figure out how to find my way in because it sounds like you ought to be able to jump in there, but it's yeah. not what you think. It's there's a lot of stuff under the <laughs> hood that has got to be understood.
2: For sure. I was wondering when you were talking about, like, you know, back, you know, in Africa, before strings were made in a in a store or before they were made, what were original strings comprised guts. of?
1: Guts. 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 Animal material. Yeah. Animal intestines, right?
3: Yeah, that's cat gut. You know, they used to say cat gut strings. That's what they made fiddle strings out of, too. Guts. No kidding. But, um, but then when the fishing line, you know, Nylon fishing line came in. That, that's what the that string players use. That's what all the string players would use use now, and they know the gauges, fishing line gauges. You know, they cut yeah. them, cut them themselves, and wrap them on.
1: I found that out from uh, Rob D'Addario because I've been with D'Addario strings since forever. I've been using them since I was fifteen, and yeah. I was at a Nam show, and Rob D'Addario, the I think he's like the grandson, and uh, I said so. How did D- 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 Dario start? He goes, Well, back in the 1600s. I was like, What? <laughs> so there's like, a, it was way back there. And they had a, they lived on an island. They were sheep farmers and there was a famine and all the sheep died. So their entire livelihood was. So they oh took God. all the sheep guts and made strings.
3: Wow. That's and ended up making strings for
1: all these orchestras. And
2: you know, I'm like- always fascinated uh. by the first, the first person who discovered like who the who the hell realized a potato was edible like the first guy to eat a potato like how it looks like and a not rock die. it's underwater <laughs> right right under underground so i'm thinking like sheep guts like who looks at dead
1: sheep and goes we could make strings out of that like wow. what an i don't think they were thing. the i don't think they were the first but like if you if you had sheep guts sitting there and they sat in the sun for a while you know, they probably become pretty tense. rubbery. Yeah, interesting. <laughs> you think, man. Yeah. If I, damn, I don't know. It's so amazing to think you, about. Once you get past the smell,
2: <laughs> and I, and I wanted to ask one more quick question, Baylor. What when you said panning on the album when you're yeah. when you're mixing and you're doing pan? Can you explain what that means
3: when you're mixing? Okay, and it's panning? so stereo. You have a field that goes all the way to the right and left, and then there's a middle. And yeah. so you, um, if you clump things in the middle, it it, it presents real well. But um, things can get muddled, and with instruments that are all very similar sounding to me, I mean, I remember when I was in Newgrass Revival, and we had this great um, producer named Garth Fundus, and he would and I asked him about what he thought of my records. He said, "You're not using your pans. You're not using your pans. Use uh, you, you, you've got all this field available to you. Why are you only using this?" And so, um, and I realized that when I was uh, mixing bluegrass records, where I didn't want them to sound muddled. Um, the deep instruments like the guitar and the dobro that had the lowest strings beside the bass, if I could pull them out further to the sides, all of a sudden there was room in the middle for the fiddle, the banjo, and the mandolin, which didn't compete as much. If you spread them out, okay. you, you can perceive the mandolin's coming from here, the fiddle's coming from here, the bass and the banzo can both come from here because they're not dominating, they're not uh, duplicating. And the, the rich instruments out to the sides, which a lot of people would still say, that's not the way to mix bluegrass. You know, the guitar should be next to the bass in the middle and it makes a big dance thing. But with my music where I want you to hear, like I, one of my reasons was I was recording with Tony Rice and I was, yeah. here's the thing about Tony Rice. Like his rhythm playing is, is so unbelievable and you can't hear it on a lot of records. It disappears because it's in there in the middle. I was like, I'm going to be a record where you can hear what Tony Rice did. Cause every time we ever did a session with Tony Rice over the years, as soon as he would leave, we would turn on the, the, we would turn back the tape and, and mute everything but the guitar, and just listen to his guitar tracks by themselves. And you could hear all this unbelievable rhythmic play, this cross picking, this use of the guitar. And, and we'd go, wow, it's so great! This album's going to be so great. The record would come out, and you couldn't hear any of it. It would just get. So I was like, "I'm in, you're going to hear Tony Rice on my record." Awesome. And so I panned them all the way to the side <laughs> and turned them up. You know, I make sure that. like yeah. as loud as the middle. And, Thank you for and explaining I that. Yeah. Put the dobro on the opposite side, and then the deep stuff was was uh uh balancing each, each other and there was room for the bass to be big in the middle and not get killed and and so people always told me "Wow, that that was a really different way to mix it and so like i did that on this record too i split up the guitar and the dobro and made the middle open not and so had, great. had more room and it was a lot harder when i had like 10 different people on it. i still had to find panning spots you need a bigger what, pan
2: <laughs> Yeah, I want
3: more. I want more, but...
1: Yeah. Well, Thank you for you explaining that.
3: End, you, about... you lose some lows. So you, it has to be something that can handle that. Or if something's too dark, push it out to the side. It gets clearer. If something's too, too bright you, and it's thin, move it more toward the center, if possible. Those are all tricks that you learn as home studio... Uh, Everybody came out me. of the
2: pandemic with a master's degree in something, right? <laughs> Didn't we hear that? Until? Did John Mayer <laughs> <Nair> say that?
1: <laughs> you know, what's funny is I think a lot of people, and I try to tell this to my students a lot, just like to pay more attention to rhythm. And it's great mm-hmm. that you make that available. Cause I'll never forget listening to, I think it was a Jimmy Smith record and Kenny Burrell was playing guitar. <clears throat> and, I ended up focusing on Kenny Burrell behind Jimmy Smith's solos instead of the solo, and what he was doing was like what you were talking about, Mike. It was so symphonic,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like it was orchestrated. There was, you know, the way he played rhythm yeah. was just like a symphonic, and it blew my mind. And I thought, you know, a lot of the younger music, same with funk music, same, uh, you know, the rhythm thing is is super important, and it's a shame to miss because there's so much mm-hmm. nuance and layers, rhythmic, harmonic, everything, you know? And yeah, I'm, a, yeah. I, I'm kind of surprised, actually. I guess I didn't know as much about Tony Rice as I thought. I didn't know he was catching that kind of hell from
3: traditionalists. Oh, you Tony know? Tony Rice? No, Tony Trishka was the one getting the hell from traditionalists.
1: Oh, okay, because I was
3: like, no, all Tony right. Rice was pretty much he was he was uh you know God come down from heaven. For that's Lugas what people. I
1: thought. That's what I thought. Okay, good. So I'm glad then, you cleared that up. I was like, man, they were giving Tony Rice hell. No, I thought he was God. <laughs> you know, and
3: even, and even when he left the music and moved to California and started playing hippie music with David Grisman, they still loved him and thought he was the cat's pajamas. You know, he he somehow evaded because he had southern. Even though he was, I think, yeah. from California or Florida, he had a Southern vibe, and um, and he was clearly, you know, he played with Crow, and yeah. there was no doubt about him, you know? Yeah. Awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm it's glad you got so some cool. of that, too, because I feel like, you know, to me, anyway, there's no doubt about you, you oh. know, as far as, you know, really, uh, I could feel it. I could feel that you went down South and and lived it. You know, it's a uh, that no. nuance is something. I, you know, I I had the same elitist kind of thing, my musical snobbery. That my parents are New Yorkers. My dad's a big jazz head. He was into a lot of stuff, but the one thing that we he he didn't really he wasn't really into was like old blues, like old mm-hmm. old country. And he had bluegrass records and country, but he didn't put it on the same level. And so, when I met Colonel Bruce and I I started to play with bluegrass musicians and play with old blues musicians, I realized, like you said, like how much more was going on than I realized. Like the nuance was just mind-blowing. And now it kind of ruined some other music for me if it doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's strange. Like, I mean, I still love a lot of the stuff I loved before, but a lot of the stuff I loved before kind of fell by the wayside. Because of that, you know that dynamic, like just finding out, finding that—I uh, don't know—it he ruined my elitist thing. <laughs> <laughs> good, but yeah. I feel like you have that. I feel like you, you, you got all of that. You got I started the
3: good. You know, I started there, like because I wanted, By the time I got to where I was playing with Sam Bush and Tony Rice and Mark O'Connor and Edgar, like I was thinking I was pretty hot stuff, you know, and but the the honest truth, the reason I was more elitist was because I discovered that when I didn't play with those guys, I didn't sound that good. And so I didn't want to go play in like a a pickup session with a bunch of guys and go jam and like not be able to play the way I could play when Sam Bush was, I mean, I have to say Sam Bush made me a better musician. I mean, playing, standing next to him, he's a rock and the two of us just turned into this rock together New Grass Revival. You couldn't budge Shit. us. Mm. And I thought my time was like, I was like, I've never lost the beat yeah. in, in nine years. I've never lost the beat. And it wasn't until I joined the Flectones. And those guys are such amazing players too and such supportive players. But all of a sudden, we were playing in these odd meters. And I didn't have Sam like showing me where the beat was all the time. I discovered, oh my God, I'm not, I thought they were wrong. It was me. And I discovered that I wasn't all I thought I was. But, but being with Abby, who comes from, um, the old-time world is is not the same elitist kind of thing. She's taught me a lot about things about myself that I didn't that I don't like that much. I don't want yeah. to be that person, but I think the part of me that wants to play really good and 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 can only play a certain way when supported by certain people around me is just the truth. You know, I I, yeah. I, I can't do it without that that same support that, at the level that I can with those other guys. And then you get addicted to playing at that level when you when you get there for a moment, you want yeah. it. You know. So that's I'm that's glad awesome.
1: to I'm glad to hear you say that because I've I've said that to people before like <clears throat> it, it's really a, especially the drummer like the wrong drummer I just can't yeah. like I grew up playing with me and Kofi just in my older brother in the in the music yeah. room just the two of us and his sense of time is so amazing and I've told people I was like man you could hear me sound like crap if I'm not with the right guys I feel like my hands don't work. Exactly, it's weird. It's like somebody put kryptonite in your cornflakes. And exactly. It's like, well, I can't play now. So I'm really relieved to hear you say that.
3: <laughs> the thing about Tony Rice is he could. He all of a sudden my hands would do stuff that never had done before when I played with him. I could Conversely, get that frozen now. Yeah. And when with Sam and Tony together, it was like, oh my god, you know, this wow. is it. Yeah, um, and it, it will never be duplicated. No be one's, little- one's figured it out.
2: Tell everybody where they could find uh, this new album and everything that you're uh, up to yeah. at the moment.
3: Well, um, the album's coming out, and I think it's either the 10th or the 12th of September. And um, up until then, I think we just put out um, one of the tracks with Billy Strings and Chris Thiele that people can find on you know various up social media platforms. And uh, we also filmed this first concert that, that went so well um, that I'm sure we're going to put it up like before. And then we have a tour starting uh, in September, uh, assuming that COVID doesn't wipe us out again as this new Delta thing uh, gathers steam. Um, then we'll be out there touring um, with the first the first band um, through September. And, and the second – well, the first band was Sierra Hall, Michael Cleveland, Brian Sutton, Mark Schatz, Justin Moses, which has proved itself to be a killer band. I'm so excited about how everybody played on Saturday, uh, Sunday. but um, And then in December, we're going out with uh, Sam uh, – all the other team. Nice. Uh, Sam Bush, Jerry Douglas, Stuart Duncan, Edgar, um, Brian, <laughs> and myself, and um, and then I've got a couple of amazing gigs. Uh, one in um, that the rhyman with everybody, including Billy and Chris, oh. and also Carnegie Hall looks like is going to be happening for us too, nice. um, a couple of days later in, in January. And then after that, we still haven't figured out what's going to happen, but looking for some summer touring, and this will be hopefully a part of what I do, you know, for for the foreseeable future.
2: Beautiful, awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us. This is incredible.
1: Yeah, man, I feel like we could talk for four hours.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Will you come back and hang with us again? Absolutely, I loved it. Awesome, always loved. Great to meet you, and and Oteil, you know I love you. I'm glad you're playing banjo. Yeah, I've had him on the next album.
1: Well, uh, uh, I'm I've I've had to take. More of a break from it than I would like because of my kids. You know, they're three and six, and they almost messed up one of my pitches. That's from nineteen thirty-six. I was like, "Ah, ah, ah!" So (laughs) we both have three-year-olds. I know, and you know, it really—that really—it hit me hard when you said your son went through that because um, I don't know. When I see stuff happen to kids. Yeah. Now it, it hits me differently cuz I think of it happening to my kids. Yeah. My 3-year-old is a girl. Nigel is uh 6 now. But uh it is that's really heavy, man. I I don't know how you get through that. Like that's you have yeah. some a certain amount of PTSD after that, right?
3: Like Yeah. In fact, I remember like when a year hit and it was the same time of the year. Um, Abby went into like a whole really dark place. She she didn't even realize. And then we realized it was the same day, you know, we didn't didn't even know it. Wow. it was so powerful but um but no he's wow. great you know and he's got yeah. a really good prognosis you know he's got something yeah. he'll have to deal with but you know everyone's got something it's more like that than oh my god yeah. we're losing him which we didn't and he's but it got way closer than than you want and it it was yeah but was, yeah that's life i mean you know people live and die every day but when it's your your blood it's a different thing
1: yeah. well hopefully we can get our 3-year-olds uh, together and yeah, that would be exactly. a really
3: cool day when the when <laughs> all variants. Are, you
1: know. What are you God.
3: doing in terms of touring and, and and things with the kids not vaccinated? How are you approaching it? You know, we have. Uh, well, our kids
1: are not going to be allowed on the tour now. They're doing some. I don't know if I should even be telling this. Yeah, should this, this be off? Uh, should we say goodbye? <laughs> no, but it's. I mean, it's okay it's because I think everybody's going to big everybody's big gonna find out soon. But. um yeah, we're doing a super lockdown because we have forty-two dates. Is this them? No, no, no. This is Dead and Company. Oh, Dead and Company. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we are, but you know, to me, like all it all is remains done, right? to be. seen. Yeah. all been done.
3: Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Keep going. I'm sorry, I interrupted.
1: No, no, no. It's okay. So we're just. It's kind of a remains to be seen thing. If we don't. Yeah. You know, I think some things are going to change, and I, I don't want to say what might change, because uh, I don't know. Yeah. I have an idea what might, but you know, we're it's very much just that we're playing it by ear and we're seeing how yeah. it goes day to day, but I am looking forward to the day when uh, our kids can be together. We both started having them older. So, yeah. uh, you know, we have that in common too, so I I uh you, I'll be 57 in a few days. Yeah. On the so 24. Yeah. <laughs> when did you start when did you have your first kid? How old were you? Uh, I think I was, uh, well, let's see, uh, 54. Oh, yeah. you saw, I was 50. So, yeah. yeah. You so started I'm, I'm 63. And, well, Juno's
3: eight, so it would have been maybe 55. Yeah. So, yeah. I think yeah, it's he's nice. A kid. I'd love to meet your kids and get them together. That would be oh, such likewise. Good...
1: We'll do it, man. Well, thank yeah. you so, so much, man. This has been super great, and it's really great to see your face, and I uh, can't wait thank till you. we can see each other in person again soon. Yeah.
3: All right, guys.
1: Pleasure to meet you, and thank you again for saving my life at
3: Bonnaroo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I can do
1: it. <laughs> you have a great day, man. Bye.
4: Osiris. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football